Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter, and I'm happy to bring you Time Magazine. I need to remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. I will be sharing an article about Elon Musk, first of all, from the October 9th, 2023 issue. It's from the World of Business. Headline, The Control Key. Inside Elon Musk's Fight and Fears for the Future of Artificial Intelligence by Walter Isaacson, who is a former editor of Time and a professor of history at Tulane and the author of numerous acclaimed biographies. This is copyrighted 2023 and adapted from the book Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson, published by Simon & Schuster and printed by permission. At a conference in 2012, Elon Musk met Demis Hassabis, the video game designer and artificial intelligence researcher who had co-founded a company named DeepMind that could learn how to think like humans. Elon and I hit it off right away, and I went to visit him at his rocket factory, Hasaba says. While sitting in the canteen overlooking the assembly lines, Musk explained that his reason for building rockets that could go to Mars was that it might be a way to preserve human consciousness in the event of a world war, asteroid strike, or civilization collapse. Hasabas told him to add another potential threat to the list, artificial intelligence. Machines could become super intelligent and surpass us mere mortals. Perhaps even decide to dispose of us. Musk paused silently for almost a minute as he processed this possibility. He decided that Hassabis might be right about the danger of AI and promptly invested $5 million in DeepMind as a way to monitor what it was doing. A few weeks after this conversation with Hassabis, Musk described DeepMind to Google's Larry Page. They had known each other for more than a decade, and Musk often stayed at Page's Palo Alto, California house. The potential dangers of artificial intelligence became a topic that Musk would raise almost obsessively during their late-night conversations. Page was dismissive. At Musk's 2013 birthday party in Napa Valley, California, they got into a passionate debate. Unless we built in safeguards, Musk argued, artificial intelligence systems might replace humans, making our species irrelevant or even extinct. Page pushed back. Why would it matter, he asked, if machines someday persurpassed humans in intelligence even consciousness, it would simply be the next stage of evolution. Human consciousness, Musk retorted, was a precious flicker of light in the universe, and we should not let it be extinguished. Page considered that sentimental nonsense. If consciousness could be replicated in a machine, why would that not be just as valuable? He accused Musk of being a speciest, someone who was biased in favor of their own species. Well, 
Yes, I am pro-human, Rusk responded. I really like humanity, dude. Musk was therefore dismayed when he heard at the end of 2013 that Page and Google were planning to buy DeepMind. Musk and his friend Luke Nosek tried to put together financing to stop the deal. At a party in Los Angeles, they went to an upstairs closet for an hour-long Skype call with Hassabas. The future of AI should not be controlled by Larry, Musk told him. The effort failed, and Google's acquisition of DeepMind was announced in January of 2014. Page initially agreed to create a safety council, with Musk as a member. The first and only meeting was held at SpaceX. Page, Hassabas, and Google chair Eric Schmidt attended, along with Reid Hoffman and a few others. Musk concluded that the council was basically bullshit. So Musk began hosting his own series of dinner discussions on ways to counter Google and promote AI safety. He even reached out to President Obama, who agreed to a one-on-one -on -one meeting in May of 2015. Musk explained the risk and suggested that it might be regulated. Obama got it, Musk says. But I realized that it was not going to rise to the level of something that he would do anything about. Musk then turned to Sam Altman, a tightly bundled software entrepreneur, sports car enthusiast, and survivalist who, behind his polished veneer, had a Musk-like intensity. At a small dinner in Palo Alto, they decided to co-found a nonprofit artificial intelligence research lab, which they named OpenAI. It would make its software open source and try to counter Google's growing dominance of the field. We wanted to have something like a Linux version of AI that was not controlled by any one person or corporation, Musk says. One question they discussed at dinner was what would be safer? A small number of AI systems that were controlled by big corporations or a large number of independent systems? They concluded that a large number of competing systems providing checks and balances on one another was better. For Musk, this was the reason to make OpenAI truly open, so that lots of people could build systems based on its source code. Another way to assure AI safety, Musk felt, was to tie the bots closely to humans. They should be an extension of the will of individuals rather than systems that could go rogue and develop their own goals and intentions. That would become one of the rationales for Neuralink, the company he would found to create chips that could connect human brains directly to computers. Musk's determination to develop artificial intelligence capabilities at his own companies caused a break with OpenAI in 2018. He tried to convince Altman that OpenAI should be folded into Tesla. The OpenAI team rejected that idea, and Altman stepped in as president of the lab, starting a for-profit arm 
that was able to raise equity funding, including a major investment from Microsoft. So Musk decided to forge ahead with building rival AI teams to work on an array of related projects. These included Neuralink, which aims to plant microchips in human brains, Optimus, a human-like robot, and Dojo, a supercomputer that can use millions of videos to train an artificial neural network to simulate a human brain. It also spurred him to become obsessed with pushing to make Tesla cars self-driving. At first, these endeavors were rather independently, but eventually Musk would tie them all together, along with a new company he founded called XAI, to pursue the goal of artificial general intelligence. In March 2023, OpenAI released GPT-4 to the public. Google then released a rival chatbot named Bard. The stage was thus set for a competition between OpenAI Microsoft and DeepMind Google to create products that would chat with humans in a natural way and perform an endless array of text-based intellectual tasks. Musk worried that these chat box and AI systems, especially in the hands of Microsoft and Google, could become politically indoctrinated, perhaps even infected by what he called the woke mind virus. He also feared that self-learning AI systems might turn hostile to the human species. And on a more immediate level, he worried that Chatbox could be trained to flood Twitter with disinformation, biased reporting, and financial scams. All of those things were already being done by humans, of course, but the ability to deploy thousands of weaponized chatbots would make the problem two or three orders of magnitude worse. His compulsion to ride to the rescue kicked in. He was resentful that he had founded and funded OpenAI, but was now left out of the fray. AI was the biggest storm brewing, and there was no one more attracted to a storm than Musk. In February of 2023, he invited, perhaps a better word is summoned, Sam Altman to meet with him at Twitter and asked him to bring the founding documents for OpenAI. Musk challenged him to justify how he could legally transform a nonprofit funded by donations into a for-profit that could make millions. Altman tried to show that it was all legitimate, and he insisted that he personally was not a shareholder or cashing in. He also offered Musk shares in the new company, which Musk declined. Instead, Musk unleashed a barrage of attacks on OpenAI. Altman was pained. Unlike Musk, he is sensitive and non-confrontational. He felt 
that Musk had not drilled down enough into the complexity of the issue of AI safety. However, he did feel that Musk's criticisms came from a sincere concern. He's a jerk, Altman told Kara Swisher. He has a style that is not a style that I'd want to have for myself, but I think he does really care and he is feeling very stressed about what the future is going to look like for humanity. The fuel for AI is data. The new chat box were being trained on massive amounts of information, such as billions of pages on the internet and other documents. Google and Microsoft, with their search engines, and cloud services and access to emails had huge gushers of data to help train these new systems. What could Musk bring to the party? One asset was the Twitter feed, which included more than a trillion tweets posted over the years, 500 million added each day. It was humanity's hive mind the world's most timely data set of real-life human conversations, news, interests, trends, arguments, and lingo. Plus, it was a great training ground for a chat box to test how real humans react to its responses. The value of this data feed was not something Musk considered when buying Twitter, which he has since renamed X. It was a side benefit, actually, that I realized only after the purchase, he says. Twitter had rather loosely permitted other companies to make use of this data stream. In January 2023, Musk convened a series of late-night meetings in his Twitter conference room to work out ways to charge for it. It's a monetization opportunity, he told the engineers. It was also a way to restrict Google and Microsoft from using this data to improve their AI chat box. He ignited a controversy in July when he decided to temporarily restrict the number of tweets a viewer could see per day. The goal was to prevent Google and Microsoft from scraping up millions of tweets to use as data to train their AI systems. There was another data trove that Musk had. The 160 billion frames per day of video that Tesla received and processed from the cameras on its cars. This data was different from the text-based documents that informed Chatbox. It was video data of humans navigating in real-world situations. It could help create AI for physical robots, not just text-generating chatbots. The holy grail of artificial general intelligence is building machines that can operate like humans in physical spaces, such as factories and offices and on the surface of Mars, not just wow us with the disembodied chatting. 
Tesla and Twitter together could provide the data sets and the processing capability for both approaches. Teaching machines to navigate in physical space and to answer questions in natural language. This past March, Musk texted me. There are a few important things I would like to talk to you about. Can only be done in person. When I got to Austin, Texas, he was at the house of Siobhan Zillis, the Neuralink executive who is the mother of two of his children and who had been his intellectual companion on artificial intelligence since the founding of OpenAI eight years earlier. He said we should leave our phones in the house while we sat outside because, he said, someone could use them to monitor our conversation. But he'd later agreed that I could use what he said about AI in my book. He and Zilla sat cross-legged and barefoot on the poolside patio with their twins, Strider and Azur, now 16 months old, on their laps. Zillis made coffee and then put his in the microwave to get it super hot so he wouldn't chug it down too fast. What can be done to make AI safe? Musk asked. I keep wrestling with that. What actions can we take to minimize AI danger and assure that human consciousness survives? He spoke in a low monotone punctuated by bouts of almost manic laughter. The amount of human intelligence, he noted, was leveling off because people were not having enough children. Meanwhile, the amount of computer intelligence was going up exponentially, like Moore's law on steroids. At some point, biological brain power would be dwarfed by digital brain power. In addition, new AI machine learning systems could inject information on their own and teach themselves how to generate outputs, even upgrade their own code and capabilities. The term singularity was used by the mathematician John von Neumann and the sci-fi writer Werner Vinge to describe the moment when artificial intelligence could forge ahead on its own at an uncontrollable pace and leave us mere humans behind. That could happen sooner than we expected, Musk said in an ominous tone. For a moment, I was struck by the oddness of the scene. We were sitting on a suburban patio by a tranquil backyard swimming pool on a sunny spring day with two bright-eyed twins learning to toddle as Musk somberly speculated about the window of opportunity for building a sustainable human colony on Mars before an AI apocalypse destroyed earthly civilizations. Musk lapsed into one of his long silences. He was, as Zillis called it, batch processing referring to the way an old-fashioned computer would queue up a number of tasks and run them sequentially when it had enough processing power available. I can't just sit around and do nothing, 
Musk finally said softly. With AI coming, I'm sort of wondering whether it's worth spending that much time thinking about Twitter. Sure, I could probably make it the biggest financial institution in the world, but I have only so many brain cycles and hours in the day. I mean, it's not like I need to be richer or something. I started to speak, but he knew what I was going to ask. So, what should my time be spent on, he said. Getting Starship launched. Getting to Mars is now far more pressing. He paused again and then added, Also, I need to focus on making AI safe. That's why I'm starting an AI company. This is the company Musk dubbed XAI. He personally recruited Igor Babushkin, formerly of DeepMind, but he told me he would run it himself. I calculated that would mean he would be running six companies, Tesla, SpaceX and its Starlink unit, Twitter, The Boring Company, Neuralink, and XAI. That was three times as many as Steve Jobs, which had Apple and Pixar, at his peak. He admitted that he was starting off way behind OpenAI in creating a chat box that could give natural language responses to questions. But Tesla's work on self-driving cars and Optimus the robot put it way ahead in creating the type of AI needed to navigate in the physical world. This meant that his engineers were actually ahead of OpenAI in creating full-fledged artificial general intelligence, which requires both abilities. Tesla's real-world AI is underrated, he said. Imagine if Tesla and OpenAI had to swap tasks. They would have to make self-driving, and we would have to make large-language model chatbox. Who wins? We do. In April, Musk assigned Babushkin and his team three major goals. The first was to make an AI bot that could write computer code. A programmer could begin typing in any coding language, and the XAI bot would auto-complete the task for the most likely action they were trying to take. The second product would be a chatbox competitor to OpenAI's GPT series, one that used algorithms and trained on data sets that would ensure its political neutrality. The third goal that Musk gave the team was even grander. His overriding mission had always been to assure that AI developed in a way that helped guarantee that human consciousness endured. That was best achieved, he thought, by creating a form of artificial general intelligence that could reason and think and pursue truth as its guiding principle. You should be able to give it a big task, like build a better rocket engine. Someday, Musk hoped, it would be able to take on even grander and more existential questions. It would be a maximum truth-seeking AI. 
It would care about understanding the universe, and that would probably lead it to want to preserve humanity, because we are an interesting part of the universe. That sounded vaguely familiar, and then I realized why. He was embarking on a mission similar to the one chronicled in the formative, perhaps too formative, Bible of his childhood years, the one that pulled him out of his adolescent existential depression, called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which featured a supercomputer designed to figure out the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And that concludes our coverage of the October 9th issue of Time. We move now to the October 23rd, 2023 issue of Time. We go first to the section titled The Brief. And here's the brief opener. This includes reporting by Solisiri Berga, Sanya Mansour, Olivia Waxman, and Julia Zorthian. The obvious and intended point of reference for the shattering surprise attack on Israel on October 7th was the 1973 October War, the devastating invasion that Arab armies launched precisely 50 years earlier, plus a day. It was the last time Israelis awoke to a life-changing assault that its intelligence apparatus had not seen coming, and also the last time they found themselves officially in a war. Another analog might be the Tet Offensive, the 1968 Viet Cong surprise attack that changed the course of the Vietnam War. Like the Hamas assault out of the Gaza Strip, it broke out on the morning of a holiday and seemingly everywhere at once. It demonstrated capacities unforeseen in a guerrilla force. It briefly overwhelmed a far superior military, and it produced images that challenged fundamental assumptions about a conflict that had ground on for years. In Israel, the challenged assumption is that its conflict with the Palestinians can be managed rather than solved. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu all but disavowed that assumption as he addressed the camera in the Kiria, the Defense Ministry high-rise in downtown Tel Aviv. The coming conflict meant the country was not an operation, not around, at war. And like the October War and the Tet Offensive, the Hamas raid and its fallout are forcing reconsideration worldwide, too, as political and military leaders from Washington to Beijing weigh the possible outcomes of this war. The attack stalls, and perhaps kills, a hoped-for peace deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia that depended on the presumed acquiescence of occupied Palestinians to the status quo. It calls into question America's long-standing hope that it would be able to focus attention away from the Middle East, and it resets a competition between global powers in the region.
Once again, the world is finding the near future of geopolitics depends heavily on Israel and the Palestinians. Brief, lopsided battles with Gaza militants, usually fought by drone or fighter jet, had become so regular that Israeli officials had come to refer to them in bemused tones as a homeowner's routine chores, cutting the grass, they would say. Mowing was the most starkly military component of managing the conflict, which has been the overarching approach for decades. The strategy assumes that there is no political solution to Jewish-Israelis' contest with the Palestinians, both of whom want the same land. The best that can be done is to contain them. On the hills of the West Bank, which three million Palestinians share with some 500,000 Jewish settlers, much of the management is outsourced to a formidable internal security apparatus that answers to Palestinian National Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Also known as Abu Mazen, Abbas, now aged 87, wagered that subduing violent resistance, which conveniently also meant subduing Hamas' arrival to Abbas's Fatah party, would produce negotiations that ended with a Palestinian state. That wager has not paid off. There are no longer Jewish settlers among the 2.2 million Palestinians crowded into the Gaza Strip. They departed with the Israeli military in 2005. For most of the time since, the enclave has been ruled by Hamas, or the Islamic resistance movement, and sealed off by Israel. As on the West Bank, Israel controls Gaza's power supply, telephone systems, and much of its economy, but it has prov proved harder to manage. Poverty is endemic, and the youthful population has no option to leave. Israeli security has relied heavily on the fences and walls that Hamas guerrillas tunneled under in 2014 and on the morning of October 7th, tore down and flew paragliders over. The scenes that ensued are seared into the souls of Israelis, who already possess, along with the most powerful military in the region, a deep reservoir of trauma. In the chaotic morning hours of Sabbath, everything was overwhelmed. The Israel Defense Force that forms the core of Israeli society, the Iron Dome missile batteries that ordinarily shield the civilian population, and the almost luxurious sense of security that led hundreds of young people to an overnight rave in the desert where the paragliders landed and opened fire. Some of the terrified young revelers ended up among the estimated 100 hostages young and old, Israelis and foreign citizens carried into Gaza as hostages. Abduction, including of bodies, is a tried and true tactic of the asymmetrical warfare Israeli faces, offering bargaining leverage from hit and run operations. 
like the deaths of civilians, the kidnapping also guaranteed Israel sympathy and wide latitude to respond. Netanyahu vowed to turn parts of Gaza to rubble, though how to do that with dozens of Israeli hostages in the line of fire? As darkness fell on October 7th, Israeli forces were hauling tanks south and, in Gaza, Palestinians' phones buzzed with texts from the IDF, warning them out of buildings that were about to be bombed. In an instant, Israeli society was no longer torn asunder by Netanyahu's efforts to sideline the Supreme Court. But the feeling was far from familiar. Some, groping for a reference point, thought not of 1973 or 1968, but 2001. It felt like 9-11. In just moments, a great deal had changed. All right, we continue now with another article from the uh, 20, October 23rd issue of Time from the world of politics. Headline, After McCarthy, a house in disarray. When asked by Nick Popley, when asked the advice he would give the next Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy replied, change the rules. The California Republican was addressing the press on October 3rd, the day he lost the job he had held for only 10 months. A decent run for an Italian government, but a mortifying brief interval to hold a position that draws power from longevity. The marble edifices of the Capitol campus that surrounded McCarthy as he spoke are named for House speakers like Joe Cannon, Nicholas Longworth, Sam Rayburn, whose grip on the gavel spanned decades. McCarthy held it for just 38 weeks. But then the majorities managed by those leaders, two Republicans and a Democrat, were elected when parties, not insurgents, ran politics. For McCarthy, and even more so for his successor, the brutal truth was that the rules have already changed. The specific bylaw that McCarthy alluded to is one allowing any member of the Republican conference to call for a vote to recall the speaker at any time. It's a rule McCarthy agreed to in January in the course of being elected, after 15 ballots, by a margin of four votes. The recall option was the price the former Bakersfield sandwich shop owner paid in order to win the support of the very far right-wing House members who ended up deposing him 10 months later. But it signaled a larger change away from governing and toward performance. My fear is the institution fell today, McCarthy said at his farewell press conference following the 216 to 210 vote. Eight Republicans had joined the Democrats in voting against him. As punishment for McCarthy's agreeing with Democrats three days earlier on a compromise bill, 
bill that kept the federal government running just hours before it was to shut down. They don't get to say they're conservative because they're angry and chaotic, McCarthy said. He singled out Representative Matt Getz, the flamboyant Florida, Florida Republican who had toyed with McCarthy through the roll calls of January and invoked the rule calling for his removal. It was all about getting attention, McCarthy said. Yet, the next speaker will inherit a house that is not only divided, but subdivided, with the GOP's narrow nine-seat majority diminished by an angry split between establishment Republicans and the far-right populist faction aided on, egged on by Donald Trump. Add to that a broken power structure that allows even a handful of dissenting members to wield significant influence, and the new dynamic raises concerns whether anyone can lead the House on critical issues. Being Speaker is never an easy job, says Representative Mike Lawler, a New York Republican. The question now is can someone build a consensus and move us forward? A Speaker of the House had never been stripped of the gavel before McCarthy. Only two others had faced a motion to vacate threat to their leadership position, neither of which succeeded, once in 1910 and, more recently, in 2015. The Republican Party is in real danger, said Larry Sabato, a political analyst and director of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. They're not going to get very much done in the coming months without a long-term game plan. One of the most contentious issues facing the House is Ukraine. President Vladimir Zelensky met with President Joe Biden in September and pleaded for new weapon systems, including F-16 fighter jets and longer-range ATACMS missiles and the White House is asking Congress for $20.6 billion. A small group of House Republicans are vehemently opposed to military aid for Kiev and have threatened to tank any legislation that would provide it. House Republicans also disagree on how to conduct their impeachment inquiry into Biden over his family's business dealings. McCarthy named Oversight Committee Chair James Comer, a Kentucky Republican, to lead the inquiry under pressure from the far right. Lawmakers may now push to remove him from the investigation. Perhaps most consequential for everyday Americans, the government will shut down if the Republican-led House and Democratic-led Senate failed to reach an agreement to pass 12 annual spending bills by November 17th. This was a difficult job for Kevin McCarthy, says Laura Blessing, a senior fellow at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University, but is now a far more difficult job for someone else. And that concludes our coverage of Time Magazine for this podcast. 
Again, I need to remind you that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. This is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.